If you imagined a world where law enforcement used new technology to monitor and predict crime, it may sound something like this. Within just one month under the pre-crime program, the murder rate in the District of Columbia was reduced 90%. They were going to be waiting for me in the car. He was going to rape me. I was going to be stabbed. Right here. Within a year, pre-crime effectively stopped murder in our nation's capital. In the six years we've been conducting our little experiment, there hasn't been a single murder. And now pre-crime can work for you. In the 2002 movie Minority Report, eye scans are an everyday occurrence and a pre-crime unit catches criminals before they commit murder. In 2023, that world doesn't exist, but it may not be far off. Today, law enforcement uses artificial intelligence for facial recognition, predictive policing, and more. And if we look outside the U.S., we're seeing a growing number of countries using AI for extensive surveillance. But research reveals there is bias built into AI platforms like facial recognition, which is less accurate for darker skin tones. And there are more questions than answers when it comes to the ethics of it all. We've partnered with our friends at Wired to bring you a series of programs we're calling Know-It-All, 1A and Wired's Guide to AI. This episode, we take a look at how police use artificial intelligence. We discuss how much these technologies can curb crime and at what cost to our freedom. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to cover. Stay with us. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from Oakland, California, is Kari Johnson. He covers the intersection of policy, power, and AI for Wired. Kari, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Joining us from New York is Farhang Haidari. He's the legal director for New York University's Policing Project. Farhang, thanks for joining us. Hi, glad to be here. And with us from Detroit, Michigan, is Tawana Petty. She's the Director of Policy and Advocacy for the Algorithmic Justice League. She's also a member of the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. Tawana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Police have used technology like cameras and bomb disposal robots for a long time. But Farhang, what kind of AI tools are currently being used by police departments? Oh, well, you know, the short answer is that AI is transforming how policing is happening every day. We've had cameras uh, for decades, but now you don't need an officer to be watching that camera all the time. There's machine learning algorithms that can do the watching for us. So there are facial recognition tools, uh, license plate reading tools, object detection tools, tools that can automatically scan social media and chat rooms to alert police about certain topics. Uh, predictive policing tools that try to alert police as to where crime might occur and uh, who might be committing that crime. And, and with all these tools come you know, a set of questions about, does it work? Uh, is it actually making us safer? Who's it harming? What are the biases that it's reproducing? And you know, above all else, who gets to decide whether we should be deploying these tools now or ever? So we'll talk mostly about police departments, but what other law enforcement agencies are using these tools? You see these at the border often, at immigration officials uh, comparing an individual's photo to a potential passport. You see these in, you see these tools in being used by departments of motor vehicles to try to uncover uh, fraudulent licenses. You see these tools being used by uh, 
law enforcement agencies that are targeting child, child trafficking. You see these tools being used by private companies who are scanning our emails every day, turning over information to police. So really the question is, you know, who's not using these tools rather than who is? So let's start with what's most prevalent right now. Kari, how are police using facial recognition technology in policing? The uh, way the process looks today, I think the presumption is often that it is something akin to what you might see on a procedural crime drama, you know, when they say, we got a hit, you know. But uh, generally speaking, uh, if you were to look at the policies of some major cities uh, like Detroit or New York City, the output, a face recognition algorithm, police get a CCTV, let's say a photo from a CCTV camera, a, a security camera. And then that photo of a suspect in a crime is fed into a face recognition algorithm. And the output is a series of photos that are taken from a database. Which database police decide to use um, is up for debate. In, in different in different places, sometimes it's mugshots and driver's license um, photos, um, and uh, in any case, once that process is completed, a human analyst then looks at the photo. Um, this could be a couple photos from a database that can contain millions of photos or something, or it could be hundreds of photos that this analyst is looking at from this single probe photo, and then that analyst uh, may share it with a supervisor. And then if they agree that one of the individuals that's in that list looks like the person who they think did the crime, then they will share this as a possible match with uh, an investigator. And it's referred to as a possible match because face recognition is never supposed to be considered probable cause on its own. Police are required to go get different forms of evidence before an arrest is made. Uh, But there have certainly been cases that researchers have found um, you know, and that I've, in uh, some of the people who I've spoken with who've been falsely arrested using face recognition. We reached out to the Detroit Police Department and Chief of Police James E. White sent this statement, quote, the DPD has strong policies in place regarding the use of facial recognition technology, including uses restricted to violent crime or home invasion investigations, and any match is only to be considered an investigative lead, not a positive identification of a suspect. There are a number of checks and balances in place to ensure ethical use of facial recognition, including use on live or recorded video is prohibited, supervisor oversight, and weekly an annual reporting to the Board of Police Commissioners on the use of the software, end quote. Tawana, you're in Detroit. What's your understanding of how widely used this technology is in the city and, and whether it's being used more in certain parts of the city than others? Um, I, I really, um, before I address that, I'd like to respond to the statement from the chief of police with regard to the protections and policies in place, because I think it's important to identify the fact that it took a lot of social justice, activism and resistance to get to the point where the police department had a policy mm. when they initially launched uh, Project Greenlight leveraging facial recognition in Detroit. There were not. They didn't have a policy at all. They were operating with a standard operating agreement. Um, The community was not aware that they were leveraging the Michigan State SNAP database. And what is the Um, Michigan SNAP database? Just want to make sure we explain that for listeners. Oh, my apologies. So Michigan State has a a database that has uh, millions of images. Um, It's called the Michigan State Police Statewide Network 
of agency photos. And so what what we found out through our activism and organizing was that since 1998 or nine, every person who took a state ID or driver's license in the state of Michigan was fed into that database for use uh, to be leveraged for facial recognition matching. So these are things that were known to the public only after research, activism, social justice, organizing. In addition to that, Detroit police did not have a policy in place and they were able to do real time tracking of the public, which meant an officer could walk around with his mobile device or any other uh, technology and scan the public in real time. It was not until we attended numerous border police commission uh, meetings, which is the civilian oversight body um, and did protesting, et cetera, town halls, press releases, petitions that a policy was put in place. So I just want to make that clear. Tawana, in terms of where this technology is being used in the city, what can you tell us about yes. that? Yes. So Project Greenlight is a mass surveillance program that leverages at this point when it started um, in 2016, it was supposed to be at eight or nine gas stations that stayed open late that they had identified having a high crime rate. It has now ballooned into over 700 businesses, over 2,000 cameras connected to multiple real-time crime surveillance centers and police precincts, as well as officer mobile devices. So um, it is it is at laundromats, it's at public housing, it's at medical facilities, it's at gas stations, grocery stores, restaurants. So um, it's very pervasive all throughout the city. And I'll finally say it's connected to these green flashing lights that are kind of like a scarlet letter around like what neighborhoods you want to steer clear of. Um, and they never go off. So if your bedroom or your, you know, living room window is anywhere near one of these, you don't get any sort of privacy. You're going to see this persistent flashing green light 24 hours a day, seven days a week. For Hank, why do police departments want this technology? You know, police are always looking for, uh, they're always looking for a, a technological edge when it comes to solving crime, detecting crime, especially in today's environment when it's hard to staff police departments. You know, there are lots of vacancies. They see technology as a way to bring more manpower where they otherwise wouldn't have it. The, the problem, though, is that uh, AI and technology magnifies the biases that already exist in a police department. So if you are a department that's focused on low-level criminal arrests, when you bring in technology, what's going to happen is you're going to make more of those low-level criminal arrests. And so the question that we as the public have to ask is, if technology is magnifying the power of a police department, what impact does that have on a community? Are they going to be focused more on serious crime, or are they going to be focused more on low-level crime? You said earlier the question about AI is who's not using it. But when we look at police departments around the country, how prevalent is the use of facial recognition, surveillance, or other types of AI? Well, the first answer is we don't exactly know because most of this happens in secret and without permission. Uh, We don't exactly know how many police departments are running facial recognition searches. We get 
Uh, we get some stories through the activism that Tawana was describing. We get some stories through reporting, like what Kari was talking about, about thousands of police departments using Clearview or the FBI's database. But there is no comprehensive accounting. What we do know is that there are thousands of departments out there that run facial recognition searches, thousands of departments out there that have automated license plate readers, hundreds of them that have gunshot detection and social media tools, and very, very few of these ever got permission from a, uh, a legislative body or from their communities to deploy it. They usually make the decision on their own, working hand-in-hand with a private company. Well, here's another part of the statement we got from the police chief in Detroit. It says, quote, previous department analysis has found that Project Greenlight cases with video evidence had a higher closure rate than non-PGLD cases with or without video evidence. Additionally, PGLD cases were solved more quickly than other types of cases, and that cases with video evidence that were not solved were active longer, indicating that investigators spent more time and had more leads to investigate than cases without video evidence. Kari, when we look at the use of, whether it's facial recognition or other types of AI in policing, how transparent or opaque is the evidence around whether or not it's effective? Um, well, you know, I think what we run into with face recognition is, you know, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? We, if we don't have the transparency around police usage of the technology, then we don't have a way to comprehensively understand um, outside of the performance of, let's say, an individual law enforcement agency, if they volunteer information about how it's been used or led to convictions, um, how it impacts um, people's lives, if it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, how many of those end up in, let's say, false arrests or something of that nature. Um, what we do know is, you know, that, as I was mentioning, the process can be rather human as opposed to it being entirely tech-driven when it comes to a facial recognition search. And, um, you know, we know that misidentification is, according to the Innocence Project's um, analysis of exonerations that uh, were done with DNA evidence, misidentification is one of the primary ways that people get falsely, um, you know, convicted of crimes. And so we know that human bias can enter the process. Um, but, you know, as, as far as research goes, there are some seminal studies in this area. I believe it was around 2018 when the Gender Shades study came out that found that women with dark skin, um, that face recognition search uh, systems uh, did p- uh, worse at identifying them than people from other uh, who identify, uh, uh, as, you know, in, in another way. Um, we also know that... Um, you know, face recognition systems have struggled with people who don't uh, conform to a single uh, gender identity. And, um, you know, a, a study by the National Institutes for Standards and Technology, uh, which is in the Department of Commerce, and studies the accuracy of face recognition systems uh, that, uh, in general, some were um, far more likely to misidentify people if they were, say, black or Asian um, So, you know, there have been improvements in general on the accuracy of these systems, even the accuracy of these systems in some instances in identifying people from the side, you know, and uh, but this there are still uh, opportunities for false arrests um, that can have um, serious consequences for people's lives. 
I want to go to this email we got from Natalie, who writes, as a Detroit resident, I want to express my strong support for Project Greenlight. I see the green lights around the city as signals of safety. At night, when choosing where to get gas and other conveniences, I choose businesses with green lights because I know they are surveilled by our city's police department. Tawana, I would imagine in this process of of trying to learn more about how the police department is using uh, this technology that you probably heard voices like Natalie's as well. How are communities responding to the use of this technology, both from the safety perspective, but because we've already talked about the concerns around privacy? Right, absolutely. Um, I've I've heard both voices. It's pretty split, honestly. Um, And that's no surprise, right? We live in a city that boast a median household income of under $35,000 per year. And when you have that type of poverty in a city, you have quality of life crime. And so you have residents here who are really in pursuit of some measure of safety. The unfortunate part about that is that safety has been so conflated with surveillance that we are forgetting about the things that make us safe. In order to see a safer community, you really only have to drive about 15 minutes outside of the city where the communities have resources, are well lit, have abundance of grocery stores, recreation centers, different things that that increase the quality of life and reduce quality of life crime. The the danger is that in this city, there appears to be a lack of imagination Uh, with regard to the mechanisms that need to be put in place in order to increase safety. Community members want safety. They want to be seen. They don't want to be watched. And unfortunately, when you're given the only options for safety are surveillance, then you tend to ask for whatever by any means necessary create safety. I want to make sure we get into the money piece of all this, Farhang. I mean, we're talking about some high-tech products. They don't sound cheap. How much is the private industry making off law enforcement? Well, you know, I hate to be a broken record, but the short answer is we don't know, but it's probably a lot. Uh, we know that uh, sometimes police departments get new technologies through free trials and other, other sorts of offers from technology companies. But once they're hooked, these, they, these technologies are not cheap. Gunshot detection that's put up around a lot of cities, very expensive. Body cameras very expensive. The storage that comes with them, very expensive. And so if you're a cash-strapped city, a question you have to be asking is, is it worth it? Are we spending our money in the right way of keeping people safe? Or are there other investments we can be making in community that have a proven track record? We got this email from Martin in Tennessee who says, if the police were somehow able to put officers on each street corner, would you be happier? With ubiquitous surveillance, they stand a chance of being able to find you if you are abducted through the use of license plate or facial recognition. Remember also that in Michigan, at least, the image on your state ID is the property of the state and can be used for law enforcement purposes. But we also got this email from KJ who says, the comment, and this is a comment earlier in the show, no program is perfect and edge case is telling. If you're sure that you're not going to be caught in the edges of this technology, you're probably not poor, living in a heavily surveilled area. You're not black. You're not Asian. You're not gender nonconforming. There's a higher chance that you'll be okay with others getting caught up in the edges. Tawana, I want to touch on the Biden administration's blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. What does it call for? Yes. So there's five principles, uh, safe and effective systems, algorithmic discrimination protections, data privacy, 
notice and explanation and human alternatives and consideration and fallback. And those are if, if just those five principles are followed, we'd be in a much better place. And I'll also just briefly say an executive order came out uh, to strengthen racial equity and support for underserved communities across the federal government. And so this order directs all agencies who are designing, developing, acquiring or using artificial intelligence and automated systems to do so in a matter that advances equity. And so no agency should feel exempt from those principles and this directive. And I think that that is a tremendous amount of progress um, in this past year. That's Tawana Petty. She's the director of policy and advocacy for the Algorithmic Justice League and a member of the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition. Also with us today, Farhang Hayderi, legal director of NYU's Policing Project, and Kari Johnson. He covers the intersection of power, policy, and AI for Wired. Thanks so much to all of you. Up next, we look at how democracies and autocracies across the globe are surveilling their citizens using AI. More from you and our guests in a moment. Let's get back to the conversation. We've been talking about police use of AI in the U.S., but if we look abroad, there are plenty of examples of countries using artificial intelligence to monitor their citizens. Joining me now to discuss the global picture is Steve Feldstein. He's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He focuses on issues of technology, human rights, and U.S. foreign policy. He's also the author of The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and resistance. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. So you put together a a global surveillance index and found that at least 75 out of 176 countries are using AI surveillance. What kind of AI are we talking about? Yeah, actually, and I I updated that that index more recently, and the number is now up to 97 countries around the world. So it's only increasing. Uh, But really, we were looking at four different types of technology. So facial recognition, uh, smart cities or safe cities, um, smart policing techniques, and then social media monitoring. So sort of four different aspects. And, and what is safe cities? Safe cities are essentially urban networks comprised of thousands of sensors that transmit real-time data to facilitate city management. So it's everything from having uh, video surveillance cameras, facial recognition cameras linked into central information processors that are able to monitor public squares and spaces uh, around a particular mun- municipality. So is this AI being used purely for surveillance, or are countries using it for other purposes as well? You know, it can be integrated uh, for a variety of things. I, for, the, for my research, I focus primarily on surveillance, but certainly surveillance is tied in, uh, particularly when you look at autocracies, into a broader repression agenda. And so it's not just a standalone thing. It is something that is very much part of a strategy and a set of tactics for uh, autocracies to remain in power and suppress dissent. Well, explain a little bit more about the differences we're seeing in how autocracies use this technology versus democratic countries? Sure. Uh, I I think a good example and one that's been uh, highlighted by the Wall Street Journal has been in Uganda. So in Uganda, they faced an election a couple years ago. Ahead of that election, the leader, Museveni, uh, Yuweri Museveni, uh, contracted with the Chinese to establish a facial recognition system uh, in Kampala, the capital city. And the reason that was done was to preempt challenges ahead of time uh, uh, from the opposition to uh, within that election. And so they specifically spent upwards of $100 million to install the system in the capital city, to monitor protests, and then to pick up people who were 
participating in opposition rallies and so forth. And there you can clearly see how the surveillance aspect, you know, what normally would sort of fall into law enforcement, very much fits into the political and one that was supplied by uh, Chinese technology, by Huawei in particular. Well, and that's one of my questions is who's behind the AI tools we're using? Who's producing most of it? Sure. I would say, you know, China is certainly the biggest mover uh, worldwide. Uh, It's companies which are subsidized by uh, uh, funding from the Chinese state uh, are uh, in uh, many, many markets around the world. Uh, Upwards of 80 countries uh, have been shown to have procured uh, those techniques. I will say that while China is the largest mover worldwide, uh, companies from the United States, uh, from Western European uh, countries as well, also uh, are significant players as well. So while it is something where I think the Chinese uh, certainly have the highest uh, representation, it is not just an issue related to that country and those companies. It, it also extends far beyond. And when we look at the U.S. specifically, are we sourcing most of our surveillance technology internally or are we reaching out to countries like China? We certainly are reaching out. And there's been some interesting research that's come out that, that really shows that uh, a variety of, of, of U.S. companies, uh, not to mention companies from other democracies, are exporting these tools. So where does that bump up against national security concerns? Sure. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because there's always a variety of, of issues at play. And it's not always as, as simple as exporting to autocracies by you know, companies that are based in democracies. So, for example, many countries that are major importers, uh, like take India uh, or Turkey, uh, are, are democracies. You know, they're weaker democracies. There's questions about the elections that they hold and about illiberalism uh, in their politics, but they are democracies. And so then the question is, when those technologies are exported to those countries and when abuses occur, to what extent is there uh, culpability associated with that. We got this tweet from one listener who says, why in the world would you assume anything should be or could be perfect? Like anything else, there are going to be edge cases, and that's exactly what you're talking about, edge cases. And I think they're referring there to some of the cases uh, we discussed earlier in the hour where people were misidentified uh, using artificial intelligence technology. So they go on to say, so the question becomes, is this technology doing more harm than good? And Steve, from your perspective, looking at it here in the U.S. and also globally, What do you think? Well, I certainly think that when you pair powerful, invasive surveillance technologies with a repressive uh, or autocratic-leaning government, that it becomes a political weapon. I don't think it's an edge case. And I think that actually when you look at the statistics about how much these surveillance technologies actually improve crime, lead to crime reduction, which is always a selling point, the, 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 the answer is very little. But they are very good and useful tools in conjunction with other repression strategies in terms of allowing for autocracies or autocratic leaders to stay in power. And so in that sense, they are very much deliberate political weapons and not just, you know, edge cases or things that sort of help on the margins. Well, we, we touched a little bit on the data around um, whether this technology helps solve crime here in the U.S., And I'm hopefully you can pull on that thread for us a little bit, because what we heard from some of our previous guests is that there's not there's not a lot of transparency around that data. Right. So there's not a lot of transparency, but some of the studies that have come out and and granted, these are preliminary studies uh, in in a wide variety of places, including, uh, you know, some preliminary research in China as well as in Russia show that the installation of facial recognition cameras, for example, isn't correlated with a decrease in crime. So. You know, there are other reasons. And, you know, Russia is a great case in point. As you've seen the war occur uh, in Ukraine and as you've seen Putin crack down on dissent 
uh, you know, from those protesting the war, they've also installed and expanded a facial recognition system in Moscow, key to the Moscow Metro that has now been used to pick up people who are protesting against the regime. So you can very, you know, you can see the pattern very clearly in terms of how it's used by different autocratic leaders. Well, and I think when we talk about the U.S., people will hear that example and say, "Okay, well, that's Russia. That's not the United States. So to your mind, what are the questions we as citizens of the U.S. need to be asking ourselves about the use of this technology here in this country? Right. They are different cases, and I think that's a fair point. Uh, and one of the, you know, the benefits that we have in democracies is a strong rule of law and ability to redress abuses and to bring about accountability. And so even if there are lots of questionable uses, as, your, uh, as the prior guests have discussed, when it comes to uh, police force use uh, in the United States and other democracies, there is an ability to fix those problems, to bring about and, and force through transparency, to pass legislation needed uh, to bring about changes to that system. That option isn't available in authoritarian countries, save for massive protests on the street uh, that have much far greater implications. What are your big takeaways from doing this research into this technology, both nationally and globally, especially as we look at the path ahead and the, I think, <laughs> likelihood that it's, it's here to stay in some way, shape, or form? Yeah. I think the, the one of the big takeaways is it's certainly a technology that's becoming more ubiquitous, and it's not something that we can sort of back away from. We're going to have to learn to live with it and put in place the right safeguards to deal with the effects uh, of this type of surveillance. So I think that's, that's one important aspect. Uh, but I also think that we should be careful to actually understand how the technology is being used. I think there's a lot of hyperbole out there. And one of the things I found in my research is that the, the effective use is tied to the capacity of your law enforcement agencies in question. So in other words, if you have a really weak law enforcement agency without good command and control structure, your ability to actually exploit this information towards bad purposes is, is reduced. And so that, you know, that's something that's worth thinking about. On the other hand, if you take a Russia or a China or an Iran, you know, where you already have very strong and repressive security forces, Adding these techniques really can be transformational in terms of their ability to snuff out dissent, uh, to lock down their societies even further. And that should be worrisome for all of us. So as we look ahead at how we may use this technology, I mean, I, I, I consider the fact that there is now a digital record of me <laughs> um, that's somewhere, and some of it is, you know, for my own use of social media, but some of it I don't even know probably exists. Is there a way for us to think about the controls we need to have over our own privacy and maybe how to push for that? Yeah, I think there is a growing recognition that something more needs to be done. And I think there's a couple ways to approach that, one of which is, as you mentioned, sort of think about uh, greater ways to enhance privacy. And that's something that, you know, in the U.S. context has been really lacking. In the global context remains pretty fragmented. I think another way to think about things is also to say, is there a way to bring about a, a more robust ethical framework and safeguards to how the technology is used? And to that extent, there is a growing normative push in different places, including in UNESCO, in the OECD, among the G20, and particularly in Europe, to do more, to put in place more robust regulations, to at least set the ground rules about what is appropriate and where there ought to be greater scrutiny and oversight about the use of these technologies for surveillance. But so often we see the technology outpace those conversations you're describing. How do we fix that dynamic? Well, I don't know that we can ever 
fix that. Uh, you're absolutely right that regulation uh, is is going to be a laggard because we can't anticipate where innovation will take us. However, we can set a floor. We can set ground rules that generally can then be implemented in more specific ways depending upon how different uses of technology evolve. Take you know uh, generative AI technologies that are now out there. It's they're not completely new. They are related to the collection of data uh, and the safeguards that we've already been talking about when it comes to algorithms can be applied in that way. So I think there are ways to kind of bridge that gap, but it is a, an, an ongoing and persistent conundrum. I think. That's Steve Feldstein with Carnegie's Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program. Steve, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our friends at Wired for partnering with us on this series dedicated to artificial intelligence. Today's producers were Michelle Harvin and June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.